This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, Democracy Now!, Counterspin, Moyers and Company, BBC Newsnight, Activism from Vote to End Hunger, and Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolff. So Americans seem to have a misconception about uh, where we are in terms of inequality in incomes. Now, everybody believes in the American dream, kind of, mostly, as you're about to see, right? Uh, but they don't realize the reality of what's happening. Now, it, it wasn't always this unequal. If you go back to the 1960s, actually, the numbers are pretty good. Uh, in the 1960s, for example, according to Jordan Weissman, who was looking at some of the studies involved here, the typical corporate chieftain in the U.S. earned 20 times as much as the average employee. Okay. Now, that seems like a big number, but I, I'm comfortable with that. It turns out a lot of Americans are comfortable with that. Um, in fact, uh, when they were asked, the median American guessed that the executives out-earned factory workers roughly 30 to 1. So, actually, it's in the 1960s, we were doing better than the average American's expectations in terms of equality between the CEOs, the executives, and the rest of the workers. All right, so far, so good. Uh, now, when you ask Americans, though, what should it be? They believe that the ideal uh, ratio would be about 7 to 1. They thought it was 30 to 1, and by the way, the 31 is today. They were guessing that today, not in the 1960s, right? And, and I think people are loosely aware that it's much more unequal than it was in the 60s. So they think it's 30 to 1 today. They guess, they said that the ideal would be 7 to 1. So what is it today? Not in the 1960s. What is it today? Today, depending on whose estimate you choose, the average, uh, the average CEO makes anywhere from 272 to 354 times as much as the average worker. So it's not 30 to 1. It's about 300 to 1. Americans think it should be 7 to 1. It's 300 to 1. You have no idea how badly you're being rooked. You're like Mustafa in Austin Powers. You're badly burned. You're still there, but you're burned. And you don't even know it. In fact, I'm going to get to explaining here uh, how much you don't know it. Now, according to the AFL-CIO, the average CEO today takes home more than $12 million, while the average worker makes about $34,000. Isn't that amazing? Okay, now remember, CEOs are not necessarily entrepreneurs. So some CEOs were the people who started the company, the Bill Gates, the Steve Jobs, etc., right? But most CEOs, the overwhelming majority of CEOs, are not the entrepreneur who took great risks and then, of course, gets huge payout. We all understand that, and that's how capitalism works. I think most Americans are comfortable with that, right? But they're just the guys who run the company. So, and, there's, and we've shown in study after study that, in fact, actually the highest-paid CEOs don't do any better. In fact, sometimes they do worse than CEOs that are paid less. So this whole idea of like, no, 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 you have to pay through the roof so that you get a CEO that has your company do much better is not really true. So that you're getting these disproportionate payouts when they didn't necessarily start the company, they're a manager. They're a manager, right? So 20 to 1, 30 to 1 might make sense, but 300 to 1, $12 million on average. It's unbelievable. If I owned the company, I wouldn't give a CEO $12 million to run it. I'm like, I bet I could find a really smart guy for a lot less. Okay, why the, and by the way, if you don't know, they rigged the rules. I'm going to tell you about that a little bit. With the government and within their own companies. All right, so we'll get to that in a second. That's the explanation. 
So uh, this is also very interesting. Americans didn't answer the survey much differently from participants in other countries. Australians believe that roughly 8 to 1 would be a good ratio between CEOs and the average worker. French settled on about 7 to 1, and the Germans settled on around 6 to 1. So we're right at the average uh, of the developed world. We think it should be 7 to 1, when obviously it's nowhere near that. Now, uh, we go to Michael Norton, Harvard Business School professor, who uh, begins to explain this a little bit. Uh, and this is fascinating. He's the part of the guys who did the study. Maybe most importantly, people from all walks of life, Democrats and Republicans, rich and poor, all over the world, have a large degree of consensus in their ideals. Everyone's ideals are more equal than the way they think things are. So, actually, Republicans don't disagree. Conservatives don't disagree. They think that there is great inequality, even though they're underestimating it by a factor of 10, right? I mean, they think it's 30 to 1. It's, in fact, 300 to 1. And they already think 30 to 1 is terrible. Okay, now, here's a fascinating thing where they compare Sweden and the U.S. Now, remember, Sweden quite socialist, in fact, one of the most socialist countries there are, okay, and they have much better income equality, better distribution of income. Okay, so, participants were shown three unlabeled pie charts meant to depict possible wealth distributions, one that was totally equal, one based on Sweden's income distribution, which is highly egalitarian, and one based on the U.S. wealth distribution, which is wildly skewed toward the rich. They use Swedish income data as a model rather than wealth, to strike a clear contrast with the United States. Then the subjects were told to pick where they would like to live, assuming they would be randomly assigned to a spot on the economic ladder. With their imaginary fate up to chance, 92% of Americans opted for Sweden's pie chart over the United States. Okay, now think about that. They did not pick the perfectly equal chart. They didn't. They didn't pick the American chart. 92%, not of Germans, not of Italians, not of anyone else, 92% of Americans picked the chart for equality that matched one of the most socialist countries in the world. So that leads to a number of conclusions. First of all, you're socialist and don't even know it. You think, oh yeah, free markets, all right, yeah, all the Republicans in the service. Yeah, but that's just propaganda you've been fed. When you're asked the specifics, how would you like society to be? You pick a very socialist society. One that has got much better income distribution. And I say better because you said better. You said that's what you want. 92% of Americans said that that's what they want. If you want more on the study, by the way, go to Slate and, and check it out. We'll have the link down below in YouTube, okay? Because uh, it's fascinating to look at. So that's point number one. Point number two is, uh, why don't you know this? Why are you so off on your predictions here, generally as Americans? Why do you think it's 30 to 1 when it turns out it's about 300 to 1? Isn't that weird? Well, the reality is, generally speaking, they don't want you to know. Now, who's gotten all the advantages in the system? The CEOs, as we just told you, right? The executives that run the corporations. What are the major news outlets that you watch, especially on television? They are corporations. Do they want you to know that, in fact, they're filtering all the money up to the top and that you have such enormous income inequality in this country that if you knew the depth of it, you might even start a revolution, a political revolution? They don't want you to know that. 
So they'll talk about all this and scare the bejesus out of you. ISIS, Ebola, oh, look at all these things. You're not going to get Ebola. There's one guy in the country with Ebola and he just came from Africa and he's quarantined. You're not going to get Ebola. That's not the real danger. The real danger is that you work super hard and they take your money. Here, this is what I mean. I'll show you a graph. This is one of the most interesting graphs because it goes to show you. Now, look, it seems like, well, that's kind of benign, right? It kind of a couple of lines. But let me show you uh, what's happening here and why it's so important. Uh, the top line is productivity. And it has consistently gone up all throughout these years, okay? So throughout all these decades, the American worker has been perfectly productive. Great job, guys. And if you notice, throughout all these years, until about 1980, uh, that your income has gone up with your productivity. That makes sense. You were productive, and you got better income. Great. That's how capitalism is supposed to work. That's why I'm in favor of capitalism. But around 1980, they changed the rules. And what winds up happening is, your median income starts to flatline. Your productivity is still high and soaring, but you do not get the gains from that productivity. That part in the middle there, between productivity and income, all of that is taken. It seems small and sharp, but in the real world, that is trillions of dollars of productivity. And it is filtered up to the top. That's why the CEOs are getting $12 million a year on average. That's why they're getting paid up to 350 times what you're getting paid. Because they rigged the rules. It's not an accident. It's not like, well, it always happens. No, wait, wait, wait. It doesn't happen in Sweden. It doesn't happen in other countries. It hasn't always happened in America. In, in America in the 1960s, the golden age, conservatives say that's the golden age of America, right? It wasn't like that at all. Why? We had a much higher rate for the top marginal income bracket. So if you made about, you know, at, in today's dollars, millions of dollars, right? They charge, they, the tax rate was all the way up to 91% at one point. Now, it wasn't 91% of all of your income. It was 91% above, a, if every dollar above a couple of million dollars in today's dollars, okay? So, if you made a gargantuan amount of money, they said, okay, look, we're going to take that for infrastructure so that everybody can be better off, so that we can educate the next generation of Americans. And they can be just as productive as you were, and we can grow this economy. And that worked. It worked in the 1950s, it worked in the 1960s, and through the 70s. And then we ran into a brick wall for two reasons. The Reagan Revolution, they said, no, end of that. We're cutting taxes on the rich. We're cutting taxes on corporations. We're shifting the tax burden on the average American. Okay, And we're going to get rid of regulations. So if a company wants to say, hey, you know what? Uh, we're not really going to share the profits that we're making with uh, our workers. Eh, we're not going to regulate. You go ahead. Take the, take the money. Who cares, right? And all of these different rules that they changed, and of course, other than the Reagan Revolution, the major thing that happened was in 1976 and 1978, the Supreme Court had two colossal decisions that said corporations are human beings, that they had decided that earlier, and hence they have freedom of speech rights and freedom of speech means spending money in politics corporations can now spend money buying your politicians and they did they bought them in bucketfuls and they captured the american government and rigged the rules in their favor and instead of having a reasonable twenty to one ratio between the executives and the average worker they made it three hundred to one it didn't happen in other countries. It didn't happen in this country at another time. It happened starting in the 1980s because they fixed the rules to screw you over 
and on behalf of the executives. They rigged the government that way, and then within their own companies, they said, oh, yeah, the CEO and management will help pick the board, and then board, the board will help pick management and the CEOs. What is that? That's a circle, right? So they all decide, oh, yeah, we're super important. We all got to get paid a lot of money. By the way, who does that screw over? Shareholders, not just the employees, but the shareholders, the people who theoretically own the company. Sorry, you don't have a lot of rights. You can show up once a year, and maybe we'll allow you to vote. They rig the rules so much that a lot of shareholders in this country can't even vote on, whether, on what compensation they're going to give their executives. Isn't that insane? It's the owners of the company. That's not capitalism. That's not how capitalism is supposed to work. Corporations have taken over the government and what used to be our capitalist system, and they have instituted corporatism. And this system has melded big business and state together. And they crush all their competition by ringing the, uh, the system in their behalf. They allow for all these gigantic mergers. They give unnatural uh, advantages to companies so the smaller companies cannot compete with them. They shift the tax burden onto you and they shift the income onto themselves. That is why we are in the horribly unequal state that we are in right now. And if only Americans knew how bad it was and why we got to this state, they might actually do something about it. Now you know our solution. We think that getting a constitutional amendment to get money out of politics is critical. When money swamped into, and especially corporate money swamped into politics, that's when they captured our government. We can get our government back. Back in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, our government worked for us. Ralph Nader was so strong. Can you imagine that world? That he got Nixon to pass the EPA to, to start the Environmental Protection Agency. Nixon. That's how strong progressives were. Because when your vote mattered, they had to actually care what you thought. They didn't, you didn't want your kids poisoned. You didn't want the river poisoned. You didn't want the air poisoned. They passed OSHA. They passed seatbelts. They did all things to protect the American voters, the citizens. That's the kind of country we used to have when we were in the top of the world. And that's the kind of country we can have as long as you amend the Constitution and say, let's go back to what made America great, where we're a democracy, where we have free and fair elections. Right now, the only people who can run in those elections are millionaires, handpicked by these executives to maintain this current order. Well, I don't like this order. I don't think you like this order. And according to the studies, 92% of you don't like this order. You've been had, you've been took. It's time to get up and take it back. The way you do it is you go to Wolf dashpack.com. That's our website. We've already got an army of over 10,000 people. We've already got two states that say, we're going to a constitutional convention. We're going to get that amendment no matter what Washington thinks. We're going to do it. Join us. Be part of that answer. If we write that into the Constitution, every generation of Americans has amended the Constitution because you're supposed to. You know what are amendments to the Constitution? The Bill of Rights. You know what are amendments to the Constitution, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments that freed the slaves? The amendment to the Constitution gave women a right to vote. We are supposed to work all throughout history and all the generations of Americans to get a more perfect union. It's now your turn. Do you like this system? If you do, you bow your head and you go home, you sit on your couch and you shut your mouth. If you don't like the system, you get up and you fight back. We already have a logical way to do that. We've already gotten California. We've already gotten Vermont. We've already gotten 20 different states to introduce this resolution. 
Republicans are actually with us. Independents are with us. It's 92% of the country. By the way, in other polls, do you think money is corrupting politics? 95% say yes. Of course it is. The only people who say it isn't are the people in Washington who benefit from that corruption and the people in the media who also benefit from that corruption. By the way, where does the money in politics go? TV ads. Okay? So let's overturn their apple cart and say, no, 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 we're going to take this country back to the people that it belongs to, of the people, by the people, for the people. They can't beat us if we have a constitutional answer. They can play around with the laws. You can even uh, play around with the Supreme Court. But if you write it down in ink in the Constitution, sorry. That is an answer that they cannot compete with. And the only way you can do that, money can't even buy that. The only way you can do that is through the American people organizing, demanding it, and getting it when we work together. Wolf-Pack.com. That's how we do it. joined by our guest, Asad Raymond, who is head of international climate for Friends of the Earth. As we talk now about climate and war, I want to talk about the connection between climate change and political instability. This is U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry speaking last month. For example, in Nigeria, climate change didn't lead to the rise of the terrorist group Boko Haram, but the severe drought that that country suffered and the government's inability to cope with it helped create the political and economic volatility that the militants exploited to seize villages, butcher teachers, and kidnap hundreds of innocent schoolgirls. It's not a coincidence that immediately prior to the civil war in Syria, the country experienced its worst drought on record. As many as 1.5 million people migrated from Syria's farms to its cities, intensifying the political unrest that was just beginning to roil and boil in the region. That's U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry speaking last month. I said, Raymond of Friends of the Earth, your response. I think it's very difficult for anybody now not to make the connection between climate change, war, conflict. Uh, climate change exasperates every existing tension. It exasperates every inequality. It drives conflict and war. We've seen that both in Syria, as uh, uh, John Kerry mentioned, but we also saw it in Darfur. We saw it in Nigeria. We've seen it in other places. The reality is climate change uh, is both creating the conditions for uh, social upheaval in many places. As people face uh, the water stresses, they see uh, their agricultural yields collapse. As people move from rural to urban areas, all existing tensions become exasperated. So if we really want to see, deal with the issues of, of military and, the, and, and conflict, we should go to the root cause. And the root cause is inequality as well as climate change. I want to get to inequality, but the issue of climate in Syria, explain. 
Well, Syria has suffered in, from 2006 to 2011, five years of the worst drought ever in, in Syrian history. Between one and a half and two million people moved from rural to urban areas, exasperating existing social political tensions in those cities. 80% of livestock died. So, of course, in those situations, just as we know in the Arab Spring, where the agriculture and harvest collapsed, food prices increased, tripled, those created the social tensions which, which led to the, uh, to the Arab Spring. A similar situation existed in Syria, and that's the main connection between, between the two. Inequality. Well, we live in a broken econ economic system, don't we, where, you know, we have 85 families who own 50% of global wealth. We have 80% of the world's population. The majority of the world's population only own 5% of the world's, of world's wealth. We have many of our citizens, our fellow citizens, two and a half billion who don't have access to a toilet, just under a billion who don't, can't even, uh, don't have access to electricity. The reality is, of course, we have enough finance, we have enough money. What we don't have is the political will to spend it in the right direction and the right places. So inequalities, which already lead to people, both in terms of migration, leave people vulnerable. When climate change is added to that mix, it exasperates their situation. It plunges them from being able to be on subsistence to, uh, to the kind of catastrophic situations that we're seeing. In the Sahel, for example, 15 million people facing one of the worst droughts in, in human history. Finally, as economist Dean Baker notes, the Washington Post has long expressed outrage over the fact that unionized auto workers can get $28 an hour. So it's not a surprise to see editorial page writer Charles Lane's December 2nd column complaining that the United Auto Workers ships jobs abroad. Surprising, no, but depressing, yes, because Lane's argument is that if the union would just agree to lower pay for its workers, then auto manufacturers might maybe shift fewer jobs to Mexico. Lane notes that even non-union car manufacturers are shifting jobs to other countries because moving work to where there are cheaper wages is a thing companies do. But if they didn't have to deal with a union, he says... They would have had an option to pay workers, sure, less than unionized workers make, but maybe somewhere more than Mexican workers make? An option that they would take because, well, Lane doesn't explain. It's not protectionism per se that rankles the post. Baker notes that they have yet to run an op-ed complaining about rules that allow U.S. doctors to earn, on average, twice as much as their counterparts in other wealthy countries, a rule that costs the country nearly $100 billion a year in higher health care costs. And if it were high manufacturing wages in general that were the issue, the Post would have to note that manufacturing compensation is on average more than 30% higher in Germany and several other European countries than in the United States. 
Lane says his problem is that a, quote, lucky handful of union members get paid well to the exclusion of other American workers, close quote. But if he were actually intrigued by the relationship between unions and inequality, he might note the IMF research that says that unions are associated with lower levels of inequality, not higher. So, barring all that, Lane and the Post would seem to just be instantiating elite media 101. Pit workers against workers and encourage anyone struggling to locate the source of their problems by looking down or sideways, but never up. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently-owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capital. Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether or at least consuming in a subversive way. Even in this age of hyperlinks and cyberspace, nearly six centuries after Gutenberg devised his printing press, it's still possible for a single book to shake the foundations, rattle cliches, upend dogma, unnerve ideologues, and arm everyday people with the knowledge they need to fight back against the predatory powers that have robbed them of their birthright as citizens. This is such a book, capital in the 21st century, by the French economist Thomas Piketty. The book of the season, to many, to others, the book of the decade. Reviewers have called it a bulldozer of a book, magisterial, seminal, definitive, a watershed. At 700 pages, it's already a bestseller. And there isn't a single scene of seduction, not one celebrity interview, not one picture. Just graph after graph, fact on fact, drawn from two centuries of data and embedded in prose that can suddenly explode like a supernova in the brain. Here's one of its extraordinary insights. We are heading into a future dominated by inherited wealth as capital concentrates in fewer and fewer hands, giving the very rich ever greater power over politics, government, and society. Patrimonial capitalism is the name for it, and it has potentially terrifying consequences for democracy. For those who work for a living, the level of inequality in the U.S., writes Piketty, is probably higher than in any other society at any time in the past, anywhere in the world. Over three decades, between 1977 and 2007, 60% of our national income went to the richest 1% of Americans. No wonder this is the one book, the 1%, doesn't want the other 99% to read. 
Paul Krugman has been writing extensively and generously about Piketty's book. The Nobel Prize-winning economist and New York Times columnist calls it a tour de force, a magnificent sweeping meditation on inequality that will change both the way we think about society and the way we do economics. As scholar, author of many books, and widely read columnist and blogger, Paul Krugman has himself changed a lot of thinking on politics and economics. Welcome back. Hi. Inequality has been on the table for a long time. You've written extensively. Others have, too. I mean, it's, it's a, a familiar issue. But what explains that this book has now become a phenomenon? Actually, a lot of what we know about inequality actually comes from him because he's been an invisible presence behind a lot. So when you talk about the 1%, you're actually, to a large extent, reflecting mm -hmm. his prior work. But what he's really done now is he said, even those of you who talk about the 1%, you don't really get what's going on. You're living in the past. You're living in the 80s. You think that Gordon Gekko is the future. And Gordon Gekko is a bad guy. He's a predator, but he's a self-made predator. And right now what we're really talking about is we're talking about Gordon Gekko's son or daughter. We're talking about inherited wealth playing an ever-growing role. So he's telling us that we are on the road not just to a highly unequal society, but to a, a society of uh, an oligarchy, a society of inherited wealth, patrimonial capitalism. And he does it with enormous amount of documentation, and it's, it's a revelation. I mean, even for someone like me, it's a revelation. I was going to ask, what, did, what does Paul Krugman have to learn from this, this book? Even the title, the first word in the title, capital, we stopped talking about capital. Even people like me stopped talking about capital because we thought it was all about human capital. We thought it was all about earnings. We thought that the wealthy were people who one way or another found a way to, to make a lot of money. Right. Um, and we knew that that wasn't always true. We knew that in the, in the Gilded Age or in the Belle Epoque in Europe, which he prefers to talk about, the, that, that uh, high incomes were mostly the result of having lots and lots of assets. But we sort of said, well, that's not the way things work anymore. And he says, oh, yeah? It turns out that you're wrong, that it's true that right now a lot of high incomes in America are people who didn't start out all that rich, but we're rapidly moving towards a state where inherited wealth dominates. I didn't know that. I really was, I should have known it. I should have thought about it, but I didn't. And so then here, here comes this book with, I mean, it's, 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 it's beautiful. It happens to be analytically beautiful, if that makes any sense at all. Yes, I, as you know, I'm no economist, but I found this book, as I said in the opening, just yeah. very readable, and suddenly there'd be this moment of epiphany. Yeah, it's a real eureka book. You suddenly say, oh, this is not, the world is not the way I saw it. The world, in fact, has moved on a long way in the last 25 years and not in a direction you're going to like because we are seeing not only great disparities in income and wealth, but we're seeing them get entrenched. We're seeing them become uh, inequalities that will be transferred across the generations. Uh, we are becoming very much the kind of society we imagine we're nothing like. Here's Piketty's main point. Capital tends to produce real returns of 4 to 5 percent, and economic growth is much slower. What's the practical result of that? What that means is that if you have a large fortune, suppose that our family has a large fortune, they can, the inheritors of that large fortune, can live very, very well. They can live extraordinary standard of living and still put a large fraction of, that, of the income from that fortune aside, and the fortune will grow faster than the economy. So the big dynastic fortunes tend to take an ever-growing share of total national wealth. So once you, when you have a situation where the returns on capital are pretty high and the growth rate of the economy is not that high, you have a situation in which not only can people 
live well off inherited wealth, but they can actually pass on to the next generation even more and even higher share. So it's all, in his terms, R, the rate of return on capital, and G, the rate of growth of the economy. And, and when you have a high R, low G economy, which is what we now have, then you're talking, not, you're talking about a situation in which dynasties come increasingly to dominate the, the top of the economic spectrum. And a tiny fraction of the population ends up very dominant. What's the realistic impact of this on working people? There's a direct impact, which is that part of income is always going to go to labor, although that seems to be a diminishing fraction, but the part that comes from capital is going to be in the hands of a very few people. The other thing which I think is critically important, and he talks about more towards the end of the book, is political economy. That when you have, what Teddy Roosevelt could have told you and did, that when you have a few people who are so wealthy, that they can effectively buy the political system. The political system is going to tend to serve their interests. And, and that is going to reinforce this shift of income and wealth towards the top. I was taken with something you wrote the other day. You said that, in your opinion, the real problem is not capital accumulation per se, as much as it is, quote, remarkably high compensation and income. Now, how does that differ from what you were just saying about wealth that passes to the next generation? So right now, high incomes are still primarily uh, coming from people who've made a lot of money, typically as, as corporate executives. Uh, that has been the story. So the big expansion of inequality in the United States since the 1970s has so far been driven by high salaries, high bonuses, and all, so on. That's where we are now. But looking forward, is, he's telling us that the story is already changing, and it's, it's going to change more. So we are going to probably, unless something gets better, we're going to look back nostalgically on the early 21st century when you could still at least have the pretense that the wealthy actually earned their wealth. And, you know, by, by the year 2030, it'll all be inherited. And at the same time, we can't even manage to pay workers a minimum wage of $10.10. Yeah. And what's amazing, I, I thought actually one of the most depressing things, although enlightening in his book, is he talks about uh, France in the, uh, the Belle Epoque the years before World War I, which was ideologically as much a society committed to equality in principle as we are today, but in practice was totally dominated by very wealthy families where it was impossible to even raise the possibility of seriously taxing great wealth, where it was very hard to do anything to improve the conditions of ordinary workers. And it shows you how that can happen, how you can have a society where the even though the ideology is democratic, even though we claim that all men are equal, in practice, not a chance. Isn't that what's happening now in this exactly. country? Exactly. That's the point. And what's funny is at that time, Americans used to say, oh, we should never allow ourselves to become like old Europe, and in fact, we have. You remind us often, and you did so just the other day, that the United States has a much more unequal distribution of income than other advanced countries, and that much of this difference comes from government actions, such as? If you look at, well, look at European countries, just about all of them, they don't actually necessarily have higher taxes on very high incomes. That's, uh, that's not so much the, the factor. And they, they have higher taxes overall, which are used to pay for a lot of programs of aid. So you have universal health care, right. and we have sort of are stumbling our way towards something like that now. Uh, but they have a lot of income support for people with low incomes. They have lots of support for, for young parents. They have lots of, basically, a, a lot of redistribution, which is a dirty word in U.S. politics, but in fact is essential to having a decent society. So that to be 
the average American is richer than the average person in France, although that's mostly because we work longer hours. But but the to be in the bottom of the uh, the bottom fifth in France is a far far better thing than to be in the bottom fifth in the United States because, because of these government policies. It's not that wages are especially high at, at the bottom in France, a little bit higher than in the United States because they have a high minimum wage, but mostly you have government programs which make an enormous difference. The, the level of inequality of market income, what people actually make, is not that different among advanced countries. The level of inequality of disposable income, once the government has gotten through taxing and spending, is much, much higher in the U.S. than it is in most other advanced countries, and that's because of the government. Why is, as you said, redistribution such a, a noxious word in our political system? I think mostly it's just because there's a very effective apparatus that, of, of TV and, and uh, um, print media and uh, think tanks and so on who hammer against any suggestion of redistribution. It's just they've managed to convince a lot of people that it is uh, somehow un-American which actually, if you look at American history, that's not at all true, but they, uh, it's just been pushed very hard. As I think also in the United States, look, we have to admit it, that race is always lurking under almost everything in American life. And redistribution in the minds of a lot of people means taking, it, taking money from people like me and giving it to people who don't look like me. And I think that is a big difference between us and Europe. You do know that conservatives uh, are regularly, consistently saying that inequality doesn't matter, that if the very rich were less rich, it wouldn't really make a difference to people out there working for a living? But, of course, what Europeans do, which is to tax the rich and use it to provide benefits to, other, to people lower down the scale, that makes a big difference. That can make an enormous difference. You can take, so. a, take a few percent of, of national income, take it away from that top 1% and direct it towards the bottom 20%, that's a tremendous gain in, in the quality of life of the bottom 20%. So just, just think about, actually, we have a health reform. It's not the health reform we would have wanted, but it's, a, but it's better than no reform. It's financed in large part with small surtaxes on high incomes. That's if you actually ask where the money's coming from, a lot of it's coming from an additional tax on investment income, an additional tax on, on earned income for very high earners. Um, that is going to give basically everybody in America the guarantee of being able to have essential basic health insurance at an affordable cost. That's a huge change in people's lives, which is being financed in large part by taking a little bit from the top. So a little bit of Robin Hoodism does a lot. You could do a lot more than that. So no one is talking about just you know, let's punish the rich for the sake of punishing them, but the question is can you do redistribution in a way that makes us a better society? And the answer is yes. Well, at the end of his book, Piketty is talking about the a global tax on wealth. Do you think that's feasible? Well, is it feasible politically? You know, if the United States were behind it, lots of things would become possible. If the United States were to support this, then I think you could pretty much guarantee that the Europeans would, enough Europeans would be willing to go along. And while there would be some countries that would, you know, rogue countries that would want to serve as, as havens for tax evasion, that we would have a lot of leverage over them. So, really, it's not that the international global system makes this impossible. It's really it's the U.S. political system that makes it look mm. impossible right now, and then that can change. But given the dysfunction of Congress, given the fact that the Supreme Court has, in effect, 
decided to enable corporations and the rich to consolidate their hold on our political system. Do you have any hope of the kind of change that both Piketty and you would advocate? I think you don't give up hope on these things. We have, look, look at the American political tradition. Look at the, one of the interesting things that Piketty says is that serious progressive taxation of high incomes and, and, and great wealth is an American invention. Mm. We invented it, and we invented it in the early 20th century, right at the peak of our Gilded Age, and somehow we found it in ourselves to turn, to, to find political leaders, people like Teddy Roosevelt, who are willing to say, this is a bad thing. We do not want the society that is emerging here. So I think things can change. What, if you ask, you know, are we going to get a wealth tax, a global wealth tax uh, before the 2016 election? No. Well, no, we're not. Uh, might we get one by the 2024 election? Possibly. You wrote something the other day that's hard to, to forget. You said we live in such an ugliness in America right now. Yeah. This is one of the things that puzzles me, actually, um, about my own country, which is it's one thing to have disparities of, of income and wealth and to have differing views about what we should be doing about it, but there is a there is a, a level of harshness in our debate, mostly coming from the people who are actually doing very well. So, you know, we've had a parade of billionaires whining that the, about, about being, you know, the incredible injustice that people are actually criticizing them, and then comparing anyone who criticizes them to, uh, to the Nazis. You know, it's, been, it's almost a tick that they have. This is this is very strange, and it, it's kind of scary because you know it's one thing if someone without a lot of power seems to be going off and into a rage on no good for no good reason, but these are people who, who have a lot of influence because of the amount of money they control. Given what you've just said, and given the fact that there's this ugliness, what do you think it's going to take? A mass uprising, consistent demonstrations, insurgent politics? How are we going to stem the tide that he says is? taking us into oligarchy. There's a negative and there's a positive take. Um, Pickney argues, seems to argue for much of the book, that, that we only escaped from the old oligarchy for a while thanks to really disastrous events, to, thanks to wars and depressions right. which, which disrupted the system. There, that's an argument you can make. On the other hand, if you are, uh, read histories of the New Deal, you know that it didn't come, it didn't spring out of nowhere that we had a progressive movement and a lot of proto-New Deal programs building for quite a long time. There, were, there was, in fact, a move in America. There was an increasing political, philosophical readiness to take on inequality of wealth and power long before FDR moved into the White House. And so I think there are better angels of our nature, that there is this ugliness and, which can be frightening, but there is also... A redemptive streak in here and in other places, and that, that it, you don't give up hope on this. That that given uh, consistent argumentation, given um, events, and perhaps you know, as, as people become more aware of what is actually going on, uh, then then there is a chance of changing things. Do we know that? No, but there's nothing in what we know now that says that you should give up hope of being able to change this even without catastrophe. It's been a long time coming, but I know the change is going to come. I just need some comfort, some kind of belief. 
that this war we're fighting can really bring some peace. There's no rhyme, no reason, no sweet melody. More and more weapons mean less security. It's been a When it comes to inequality, Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century says we should all worry about capital. Not so much incomes and bonuses. So, what does he mean by capital? Well, that's anything that can be owned and that generates an income. That can be housing, land, stocks or shares. Now that idea isn't new. In fact, the link between capital and incomes is very familiar. Not least to readers of Jane Austen and Honoré de Balzac. Piketty says that for 19th century novelists and their readers, the two ideas were used interchangeably. The book's big innovation has been to build a massive data set that allows them to look at patterns in the ownership of stuff, going back centuries. His research found that in the 18th and 19th centuries, the value of capital grew faster than the economy at large. So, by 1900, the amount of wealth had grown to around seven times national output in Britain. And, since that wealth started off being owned by rich people, that means that the rich pulled away from the rest of us. Now you can see that in the way that the proportion of national wealth owned by the top 1% rose, and the top 10%. But, in the 20th century, things were a little different. First of all, because of war. Between 1910 and 1950, the world wars and decolonization clobbered the European rich. All that stuff they'd accumulated got, well, blown up or handed back to other people. Then, after the war, the recovery was historically unusual, partly because it was all catch-up growth. The capital stock grew more slowly than the economy at large and was more heavily taxed. So owning all that stuff didn't really help the top 1% power ahead. The rest actually caught up a little bit. Since 1980, however, Piketty thinks that things have reverted to the older pattern. Capital has been growing faster than the economy at large. And, since the rich start off owning more stuff, that drives up inequality. So far, so uncontroversial. But Piketty's thesis is that this trend might well continue. And, if the rate at which capital grows remains faster than the growth of the economy at large, then the rich will keep pulling away. And the world could look, once again, like a Victorian age. The rich will be rich because of who their parents are, not who they are. And that's a major public policy challenge. Piketty's diagnosis might upset people, but his prescription will make him even more enemies. His proposed solution is a global wealth tax, a policy that he suggests is pretty unlikely to happen. Still, Piketty's data collection and analysis is likely to win him a Nobel Prize, even if his policy suggestions aren't taken up.
we've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, vote to end hunger. Vote to End Hunger is a coalition of organizations that includes Bread for the World, Feeding America, and the Food Research and Action Center. They joined together ahead of the 2016 election cycle to, in their words, make hunger, poverty, and opportunity a higher political priority so that the next president and Congress take action that will put our nation and the world on track to end hunger by 2030. This is an ambitious but important goal as debates come and go with numerous references to the middle class, but virtually no questions from moderators or pivots from candidates to the 14.8% of the country, 46.7 million people living in poverty. If we can't even talk about it, how are we ever going to do anything to address it? At votestoendhunger.org, you can sign and share this pledge. Quote, I believe we can end hunger in America and worldwide by 2030. Ending hunger is not a partisan issue and requires public policies that expand opportunity to reduce poverty. This election, I will vote to end hunger and make hunger, poverty, and opportunity a higher political priority so that the next president and Congress take actions that will put our nation and the world on track to end hunger, unquote. The website also has videos from 10 of the presidential candidates explaining what they would do to address systemic poverty and hunger, giving us an easy way to hold them accountable as the primary season progresses. For those who want to engage candidates at town halls and other events, Votes and Hunger has a well-done webinar with tactics and talking points. During debates, you can follow their Twitter feed as they encourage moderators to ask questions about poverty and hold candidates accountable for their answers. Primary season is the perfect time to demand issues that matter become part of the national conversation and legislative priority because candidates are the most movable right now. Use the tools at votetoendhunger.org to let those courting your vote know that you don't accept poverty as an inevitability and you expect them to address it. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If making poverty a priority in the election and beyond matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about votes to end hunger via social media so that others in your network can get involved too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. I want to also report on another document released this last week. This one by the OECD, the Organization for Economic Community and Development. I hope that, no, I'm sorry. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. Very well-known organization. It includes uh, 34 countries, basically the more industrialized, higher-income countries around the world. It was founded in 1961 uh, and is an enormously important resource for all kinds of economic documents that everybody makes use of all the time. Anyway, they released a report this last week uh, pertaining to poverty levels among the member nations, the 34 member nations. So I thought I would tell you, since we've just finished talking about extreme wealth, what it is that we can say about poverty 
And, of course, this is poverty among the 34 most developed nations in the world. And you, you all know which ones they are. I thought some of the results were arresting, and I wanted to tell you about them. The country with the largest amount of poverty, that is, the percent of people living below the poverty line in each country, out of the 34, the country with the largest amount of poverty is Israel. Let me let that sink in. Child poverty. The percentage of children aged 0 to 17 living in poverty. Number one, 28.5% of children living in poverty. That honor goes to Israel. I don't know the details, but my guess is we're looking here at the consequences of Israel being two societies in one one Jewish and one Palestinian. And we can all think about what that means. Coming in number four, fourth poorest, is the United States. The country, I'm sorry, fifth, fifth. The countries that have more poverty than the United States are Turkey, Mexico, and Spain. Turkey, Mexico, and Spain. The countries that have less poverty than the United States include Greece, Italy, Japan, France, Netherlands, Switzerland, Ireland, United Kingdom, Germany, and Denmark. Bernie Sanders has been uh, mocked and criticized for making references to Denmark. Well, the numbers on poverty suggest why Denmark may have attracted Mr. Sanders' interest. Let's begin with child poverty, in many ways the most important measure. Since what you do to your children, what you condemn them to live in and to grow up in, will affect not only them, but your own society for decades to come, it is in many ways the most. So take a moment with me to look at global child poverty rates in perspective. OECD report. Israel, as I told you, was first. 28.5% of its children live in poverty. By contrast, the United States, 20.5%. Over one out of five American children lives below the poverty line. More than one in four in Israel does. What about Denmark? Are they up there with the 28.5% for Israel and the 20.5% for the United States? No, they're not even close. In Denmark, the percentage of children living below the poverty line is 3.8%. Again, Israel, 28.5%. Denmark, 3.8%. Of course, you would want to look at Denmark and try to understand what they've done, how they did it, and what you can learn. Or, of course, alternatively, you can come up with a breezy dismissal that Denmark is different from the United States, which it surely is, and therefore there's nothing to learn, nothing to worry about, no comparison to draw lessons from. 
But if you do that, you're not thinking, and you're evading, and you ought to be called out about it. I could go on, but I really want to let this fundamental message sink in. An economic system that produces this kind of inequality inside societies across the globe is not excused by saying that some of the poorest in the world have a better uh, income and diet than they used to. Sure, some of them do. The passage of time has done that. If capitalism wants to claim credit for what it did, okay. But then it has to also accept the gap between what it did and what it could have done. The millions, the hundreds of millions whose lives could have been drastically improved if we just took a little from those who have way more than they need. No morality of any major religion endorses, tolerates, condones what is going on. And that, sooner or later, will come into play. We just heard clips featuring the Young Turks on how extreme inequality is far more extreme than most people even realize, Democracy Now! on how inequality and climate change can drive catastrophic conflicts and unrest, Counterspin pointed out how the media often pits workers against each other so they don't ever have time to point their frustration upwards, Bill Moyers spoke with Paul Krugman about Thomas Piketty's watershed book Capital in the 21st Century, BBC Newsnight did a quick summation of the same book, Our activism for today is from Vote to End Hunger. And finally, we just heard Professor Richard Wolff point out that not all poverty is inevitable because some countries actually have policies in place to minimize it and that we would be wise to look and see what they're doing right that we might want to try for ourselves. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Patrick from near Dallas. Um, Just calling with some thoughts on... uh capitalism and where this may all be headed. You had read a uh, email or voicemail from Wade about uh, what we would replace capitalism with, and uh, I think a lot of people feel like that if we replace capitalism with something different, and again, not even saying we have to replace it, but just improve it, their thought is if the workers are allowed to have some input that it's going to be very similar to kids running a household, right? So there'll be no bedtime, and it's a cake for breakfast and snacks, and uh, nobody will ever actually get things done. And one of the things that I think a lot about is that it turns out if you look actually at a lot of uh, corporations and things, that they're actually very management heavy. There's a lot of people who don't actually need to be doing anything trying to figure out ways to justify their existence. And I'm not saying that the whole world is like a Dilbert cartoon, but sometimes there's things that seem to run themselves and there's just not much for management to do. I think that there's a mix in between there. And there's 
there's a lot of successful models out there for workers to have influence at the management level that's led to very productive capitalist enterprise. So no one would dispute that Germany has done relatively well in a free-ish market capitalism, and they have workers on their executive boards. So it's not quite like the kids running the household, but the workers have a ground-eye view, and they provide a blue-collar sensibility into what's going on. So you end up with perhaps car designs that are more appealing. You end up with people understanding where some of the waste and fraud actually happens in a, in a business. Just a couple of thoughts. Call back later. Hey, James Collin. Just listening to the last episode about your email exchange with you and our buddy Wade. It's funny, Wade and I have had very similar conversations. I think Wade and I somehow get to a footing where we understand each other a little better than in your email exchange. And uh, you're right. None of us want to blow up capitalism or drag it out in the street and shoot it in the head. But the problem is with this country and why things are getting out of control is that capitalism is getting deregulated. And there are people pushing for more and more deregulation. I think to say getting rid of capitalism is a very foolish idea. But I think that capitalism unfettered is the recipe for disaster. Capitalism itself is supposed to keep monopolies from forming. It's supposed to encourage competition. The problem is, say you have a great product, and it's so great, no one can undercut it. That sounds like a great idea. The problem is, as you have competition coming in trying to take over, your product is so good, you will simply do better and buy them out. Regulations need to keep things like that from happening. Because if you just let capitalism loose with no regulations, the end game itself is for any one product to do so good, it outsells, outlasts, and outlives all competition. So I find it ironic when people talk about capitalism being a system of competition, yet... If you let it go unfettered, it will create monopoly. I mean, Jay, if you look at it, capitalism will truly eat itself if you let it go uncontrolled and unregulated. Anyway, those are just my thoughts. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, this is going to be a continuing uh, conversation, uh, as we just heard from the voicemails. There was a little bit of a conversation going on between myself and our resident conservative, Wade. He was sort of questioning me on... Hey, what's the whole deal about, uh, you know, ragging on capitalism? What's, what's wrong with that? Uh, what's wrong with the inequality anyways? And so forth. And so I thought that today's show would be, uh, nice and fitting to continue that discussion. And now, you know, and then we heard from voicemails also talking about it. And, uh, now I'm going to wrap up with a little, a little bit of a lesson. I, I've done my homework today. We've got some reading to go through. 
So let's get to it. So Wade asks, basically, uh, cap, you know, yes, capitalism creates inequality, but what's wrong with that anyways? And he was asking, you know, what, what do I even mean when I say that capitalism rewards unsustainable growth? And I gave you homework in the last episode to look up extended producer responsibility as, as just one example of a regulation that can alter the way we interact with the goods that we buy. So let's go through all of these things. Uh, so Wade says, I would like to hear your reasons on why income inequality is so bad. How does it take money from an individual? How does it hurt an average person's chances of success? Not being a wise ass, just want to hear you speak on this. So as with so many progressive issues, inequality is about much, much more than just economic justice or pitting one person's sense of fairness against another. And so we'll start off uh, with Naomi Klein and her book, This Changes Everything, which is all about climate change and how uh, capitalism in its current form is really not compatible with a economic and uh, environmental system in which we can correct climate change and continue to live as a species the way we have been for the last 10,000 years. So on the topic of inequality, Naomi Klein says, desperate people can be counted on to do desperate things, which is why we all have a vested interest in taking care of one another so that many fewer communities are faced with those impossible choices. That means rescuing the idea of a safety net that ensures that everyone has the basics covered, healthcare, education, food, and clean water. Indeed, fighting inequality on every front and through multiple means must be understood as a central strategy in the battle against climate change. So, Back to me again. I do believe that inequality is unjust in a variety of ways. As we heard today, I do think it's clear that the ultra-wealthy hoarding money has a direct measurable impact on the economic standing of all those further down the ladder. So if that was the only problem, I would still be in favor of fixing it, but I might not have the same sense of urgency as I do. As it happens, inequality affects almost everything, including how well or poorly we will end up dealing with climate change. Again, I'll, I'll just refer back to Wade's email. He says, I also don't know what you mean by capitalism rewards unsustainable, unlimited growth. If you're referring to market share or profits, then you need to look at the people, not the system. If a company makes an amazing product that people want, it will sell. And if they don't, then it will fail. What you need to do is change people's buying habits. Excellent. Here, we absolutely agree. Let's change people's buying habits. So now we go to Paul Gilding's book, The Great Disruption. And he says uh, in just this little, tiny little passage uh, talking about uh, data from Professor Tim Kasser, it says, It seems inequality is one of the greatest drivers to consume. Status competition drives consumption, and inequality exacerbates status competition as we try to anxiously keep up, driven by marketers who exploit our state of anxiety. So that's just the real short and sweet version of how we actually can use the issue of inequality to change people's buying habits, because as it turns out, inequality is a driving factor of what makes people want to buy more and more stuff. Continuing on, same book, different passage, uh, talking about all the other problems with uh, inequality. He says, 
It turns out that the greatest predictor of social ills across an incredible range of phenomenon is not the absolute level of poverty or disadvantage. It is instead the degree of inequality or income difference among people. This is profoundly significant because we have mostly assumed that actual poverty, lack of wealth, was the cause of social problems. We therefore thought that because economic growth increases wealth, even if unequally, poverty would be reduced and along with it many social problems. This has been one of the key reasons government is so obsessively focused on economic growth as its central objective. But it seems that absolute wealth is a poor indicator of social progress, whereas relative inequality within our society is a strong indicator. The fascinating thing is how comprehensive this is, impacting life expectancy, obesity, imprisonment rates, teenage pregnancy, mental health, levels of trust in the community, educational performance, status of women, and so on. The differences were not marginal, with most of the indicators being 3 to 10 times worse in more unequal societies. This applied even when none of the subjects in the group being researched were anywhere near what could be considered poor. So, for example, among UK civil servants in Whitehall, all well paid by global standards, the bottom of the group had a death rate three times as high as the top of the group, of which only one third could be explained by other causes like obesity and smoking, and some of those were perhaps driven by inequality anyway. Continuing on, inequality, it seems, is an issue with extraordinary leverage on the whole system, and pulling that lever would have substantial social and economic impacts. It will reduce our obsessive focus on economic growth and therefore pave the way for acceptance of its now inevitable demise. Here's why. We support growth and drive it hard through the political process based on the incorrect assumption most of us hold that having more money and stuff will make us happier, that wealth is the key indicator of our personal success, and that more wealth enhances our quality of life. This is more than a casual connection. In the current model, we are firmly addicted at the personal level to more stuff. The problem is that the process of acquiring it, rather than actually satisfying our needs, drives a self-replicating cycle of dissatisfaction and greater want. We believe more wealth will satisfy us, but what actually happens is that the process actually drives inequality, which increases dissatisfaction, which we try to satisfy with more of the same. Okay, as was just mentioned in that passage, uh, at least it was alluded to, the biggest problem with our current form of capitalism is our addiction to indefinite growth. So I found this excellent quote uh, in in a book called Bridge at the Edge of the World. It's written by Gus Speth. He worked for the uh, Jimmy Carter administration. And most of this quote, though, is from historian J.R. McNeil. So Gus writes, in a remarkable passage of his environmental history of the 20th century, Something New Under the Sun, historian J.R. McNeil writes that the quote-unquote growth fetish solidified its hold on imaginations and institutions in the 20th century. Quote, Communism aspired to be the universal creed of the 20th century, but a more flexible and seductive religion succeeded where communism failed. The quest for economic growth. Capitalists, nationalists, indeed almost everyone, communists included, worshipped at the same altar because economic growth disguised a multitude of sins. 
Indonesians and Japanese tolerated endless corruption as long as economic growth lasted. Russians and Eastern Europeans put up with clumsy surveillance states. Americans and Brazilians accepted vast social inequalities. Social, moral, and ecological ills were sustained in the interest of economic growth. Indeed, adherents to the faith proposed that only more growth could resolve such ills. Economic growth became the indispensable ideology of the state nearly everywhere. The growth fetish, while on balance quite useful in a world with empty land, shoals of undisturbed fish, vast forests, and a robust ozone shield, helped create a more crowded and stressed one. Despite the disappearance of ecological buffers and mounting real costs, ideological lock-in reigned in both capitalist and communist circles. The overarching priority of economic growth was easily the most important idea of the 20th century." And then, last bit on economic growth. Turns out Adam Smith had something to say about this. Uh, We're going back now to The Great Disruption by Paul Gilding, writing about Adam, Adam Smith. He says, Adam Smith, whose famous 1776 book, An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations, was described as, quote, the effective birth of economics as a separate discipline, unquote. Adam Smith assumed and indeed forecast the end of economic growth and the transition to a stable state economy for various reasons, including what he saw as the obvious limits of natural resources. Smith reasoned that all economies would eventually reach a, quote, stationary state, unquote, when they had, quote, acquired that full complement of riches which the nature of its soil and climate and its situation with respect to other societies allowed it to acquire, which could, therefore, advance not further and which was not going backwards, unquote. So that's the trouble with inequality and the pursuit of perpetual economic growth. And now, before I go, I just want to give you one more example of how smart regulations can be both fair to business and beneficial to the environment while influencing people's buying habits without being a heavy-handed ban on this or that or, you know, requirement that people do whatever. Uh, for your homework last time, I told you to look up extended producer responsibility. This is about the life cycle of all the products we buy. As a quick example, you know, there's a reason why everyone buys cheap crap from Ikea instead of investing in handcrafted hardwood furniture. You know, it is so much cheaper to buy from Ikea that most people just can't justify the higher cost of purchasing super high quality products that would last, you know, multiple generations. IKEA obviously recognized this and now makes an enormous amount of money selling cheap disposable furniture around the world. Again, this is how unregulated capitalism rewards unsustainable growth. It would be much less impactful on the environment for everyone to have high-quality furniture that lasted a lifetime, but our economic system created a set of incentives that drove us away from that path. Enter extended producer responsibility. Right now, a manufacturer is only concerned about their product until it is out the door. Uh, the basic idea of extended producer responsibility is that manufacturers are held responsible for the goods they make and sell at the end of the product's life as well. They are required by law to take them back from the customer and recycle them or dispose of them properly. And so obviously this encourages them to build more durably for long life because they don't want to take those things back, right? It discourages planned obsolescence. Uh, I, I mean, between planned obsolescence and manufacturing, desire through advertising. I mean, that is 
the, the two things hand in hand that have run our version of capitalism off the rails unbelievably badly. So it discourages that. It reduces resources and energy consumption. Uh, it raises the prices of products, which is just a way of recognizing the true cost of the life cycle of an item so that the market actually works more efficiently and accurately because it actually uh, accurately reflects the, the real price of the item. And so due to a combination of all of these factors, it then discourages consumers from overconsumption. Bam. So that is just one example of a smart regulation that changes the way people uh, you know, decide to buy what they buy and actually changes the decisions that companies make when deciding what to produce and how to produce it. So keep your thoughts coming in 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder why we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past all the sad stories And